1: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. I hope you're safe and well. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the pernicious world of extremism. Julia Ebner works as a research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a counter-extremism think tank monitoring hate groups and disinformation but she came to realise that her outsider's perspective would never let her truly understand the dark recesses of extremist thinking. So in her spare time, she set about infiltrating extremist groups from across the ideological spectrum. Earlier this year, she joined Hannah McInnes live on stage in London to tell us more.
0: Thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. Thank you all for coming. Um, I just want to start off by asking you, you say that you didn't any longer want to be the cat. You wanted to be the mice, among the mice. Why did you decide to go essentially to such extremes? What was wrong with the day job?
2: I mean, nothing was wrong with the day job. I have to make that very clear. So I've been working in that field for the past um, four or five years. And uh, initially, I started looking more at the jihadist movements, and then I joined the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, looking really at extremist movements across the ideological spectrum. And we have really, I mean, we have sophisticated data analysis tools. We can trace pieces of disinformation or radicalization campaigns back to their roots and look at how they spread across different platforms. But um, I always felt like there was some kind of wall that I kept hitting when it came to the human dimensions and when it came to... The inner workings of extremist groups, both online and offline, and how group dynamics work, how the social processes work, and what actually it is that drives people into those networks, but also that keeps them there and so, so being a, being a mouse, being amongst the mice, what does that entail it entailed um, <laughs> setting up, most importantly, setting up um, different identities in first online settings, so creating, uh, I created a total of five, actually more than that because some of the identity, or some of the accounts actually got shut down quite quickly or weren't credible enough, um, but I, I set up different identities and had to maintain kind of a presence within the different extremist movements so I had, um, I joined jihadist groups, um, for example ISIS hacking groups or jihadi bride groups but also white nationalists and neo-Nazi groups. Then I had accounts that were more tailored towards the conspiracy theory networks than for misogynist networks. So these were five different accounts that I kind of nurtured over time. And then it also involved, in some of the cases, getting in touch directly to set up offline meetings and um, being recruited into the networks. So before I come to the meetings in real time, how easy is it to get into the chat rooms? It seems more easy than I would imagine. It really varies a lot, and it has become harder over the last two years. So in the beginning, I was quite lucky because I started, for example, um, in neo-Nazi chat rooms and white nationalist chat rooms before the Charlottesville rally happened. So, for example, I was also in the organization team that organized that white white nationalist rally uh, in 2017. And after that, they knew because um, a lot of the security forces, journalists, and also uh, tech firms... Before that, they were basically under their radar, but then also um, people from the security services and, and media outlets joined the groups or tried to infiltrate the groups, so they introduced a lot more rigorous uh, vetting procedures. Okay. For example, one of the neo-Nazi groups asked me to submit a, a time-stamped uh, picture of my wrist and to prove that I'm white or the results of a genetic test. So they really had quite rigorous um, vetting procedures. And so they, they, they asked you to submit the results of a genetic test to prove that you were pure... Exactly, that's one of the... Yeah, to prove that I'm, I don't have any migrational background, basically, or non-white background, it's... Some of the groups also have voice chats where you speak to some of their leaders and some of them also have very clear hierarchies where you only get insights into the lowest levels and then you're slowly promoted to the, to the higher levels once you gain their trust. So it's one thing getting into the chat rooms and it's hard doing
0: that, but obviously arranging these meetings and in real time, how did you arrive, how
2: careful were you to be disguised? I was not very professional, to be honest. I was never trained in this, or I mean, I'm not a professionally trained MI5 agent, so it was all very ad hoc and improvised, to be honest. I had a, I borrowed a wig from a theater, I'm not going to mention the name because otherwise the people there might get into troubles, but I borrowed a wig, um, I, I put on my glasses when I went to the Generation Identity meeting. So Generation Identity, a white nationalist pan-European movement where I was trying to get recruited into their networks because I could see that they were setting up a branch in the UK and Ireland. So I wanted to see what the next steps would be for London and how they were going about their communication strategies here. And uh, I went to that meeting not very well prepared, to be honest. I knew how of course I knew the story behind my character. Yeah, it was in a a pub um, in Mayfair. And I knew, of course, what kind of the past, the present, and the future of the character that I created for that was. So it's a bit like setting up a character for a fictional novel in that sense. You have to tell a coherent story because otherwise you can be exposed quite quickly. So is there an adrenaline kick to it and an excitement, or do you feel frightened? There was definitely that, and to be very honest, that was also sometimes what kept me going. A sense of adrenaline. But it was not the reason why I was doing it, obviously. It was... um, but there was some kind of adrenaline kick, that, um, especially also being able to fool people whose main, um, basically main job often it is to manipulate other people. It felt a bit like I was, I'm also of course very much aware that I'm also using deceptive techniques to actually uncover people, people's manipulative techniques, but I think it was almost impossible to, um, to go about exposing some of these techniques without... Developing alternative um, identities because some of the things they just wouldn't really tell to a researcher or to a journalist who goes by their true identity.
0: Yeah, and you talk about in the book, there were a few times when you worried that you had let. It slipped. You dropped a credit card on the floor. Yeah,
2: right. yeah. I made some really stupid mistakes. Also, um, I once signed an email off with my real name, with Julia instead of Jenny, and that didn't. I mean, I thought it would be more suspicious if I then wrote, "Oops, um, autocorrect. I'm sorry." Uh, so I just let it, like, let, it let it go, and it actually, yeah, the person didn't really it didn't wasn't suspicious at that time. But to be honest, I was also kicked out of quite a lot of groups. Um, that didn't make it into the book just because yeah. I didn't gain enough insights so or I didn't get enough okay. information. And, and you do write about a specific incident when
0: um, uh, Tommy Robinson, it was, came, yeah. I think, to the office and sought you out so he knew who you were. And I think after that moment you then had to leave. Tell us a little bit about that, what happened.
2: Yeah, this was um, two years ago now, so um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was initially working for another thing, thank for Quilliam, uh, focusing mainly on jihadist extremism, and I wrote an article um, about the developments of far-right extremism and how um, also some of the fringe movements were moving into the mainstream, and I mentioned Tommy Robinson, the founder of the English Defence League, by name as an example of how white supremacist movements Um, increasingly um, became mainstreamed and he didn't like that and he um, already had done kind of a whole series of troll watch videos that's what he called it Um, you can see the gamification and trolling elements in that but he uh, basically had already gone to the offices of two journalists before that uh, the Wales Online office and the Guardian office and I was number three so he came to our office at Quilliam and um, yeah and gave me a surprise visit there with a cameraman by his side who was live streaming everything <coughs> to his back then 300,000 Twitter followers and that kicked off a big hate campaign against me but also the whole organization and my former employers then asked me to retract basically the statements that I'd made in the article and say that I regret having written that article <coughs> and in a public statement and I refused to do that and then I was dismissed. So... That really showed me how much power one individual, even if it's a far right influencer, can have over an entire organization, even an anti extremist organization.
0: You do concentrate a lot on the far right. You say, um, as we sort of, as I think many of us know, distrust essentially of the other is one of the key constants that brings Mm -hmm. individuals to extreme right channels, but fun, friendship, and fulfillment is what keeps them there. Um, I was struck by how often in the book you observe the similarities between across the spectrum it's the same sort of often very human uh, traits that bring people to these groups loneliness boredom tell us a little
2: bit about that that was one of the reasons um, that made me actually write this book and and also go undercover because my first book was focusing on the interplay and the similarities and parallels between jihadist extremists and far-right extremists and I could see a recurring pattern of, on the one hand, all of them use technologies in a very sophisticated way. They are early adopters of innovations. But it's more than that. It's not just, we often just talk about online radicalization as if it was a black box mechanism where someone all of a sudden becomes radicalized. Mm. It's so much about the subcultures and the, the, the countercultures, youth cultures that are created in this online. Um, hotbeds so that I was really interested in the question of what um, actually the whole identity transformation processes were that these individuals were undergoing and they appeared to be quite similar and also the group dynamics that I'm describing in the different chapters um, that I observed in the different movements were very similar from the misogynist, from the female misogynist a community that I had no clue existed uh, to the jihadists, to the white nationalists they were all in the end looking for some form of belonging and community. Is there a sense, there does seem to be a sense, in which you are, although often appalled,
0: sometimes empathize with those things?
2: Yes, and that was also, I think, uh, the most difficult part of going undercover with some of these movements was that, of course, you do start to have a certain, to feel some kind of empathy or even sympathy for, uh, for these people. Because often it is... Young people who might not even be politically interested in the first place, or ideologically tainted in any way, but who just get into these movements because they are in a weak position, because they are in a vulnerable state, and recruiters exploit that. and um, And it's hard to watch that as well. And yeah, to be honest, there were also some topics that were discussed, especially in the in the female anti-feminist community. Mm-hmm that I could also relate to. Some of the other topics were further away from my own reality, like what the jihadists were talking about. Because in
0: that example, it's one of the rare examples in which it's, uh, you're not in a minority as a woman. Yeah. But, but actually, that is obviously an extraordinary chapter, the Tradwives Movement. D- tell
2: us a little bit about that. Had you haven't you, you come across before, but what I, is that about? I had never come across that community before because I, I'd mainly looked at ISIS, Al Qaeda-like groups, and far-right groups, also at other conspiracy theory networks, far-left groups. But I'd never encountered, and I'd also looked at misogynist movements. But to, in my head, it was purely—it was mostly men who were mm-hmm. part of these groups. And encountering female misogynists was just something, to be honest, quite mind-blowing because it, yeah, it seemed like an oxymoron, and I couldn't really. In the beginning, I just couldn't imagine how anyone, any, any especially woman, would subscribe to such a backward ideology of wanting to bring the world back to the 1950s or to even earlier stage where women have nothing to say. And literally, some of the, the approaches to relationships or to, uh, to the modern world or to family systems were just... I just really couldn't see the reasons for that. But then they were discussing topics that I could identify with, like... Double burdens, or some of the challenges that women might be facing in today's world, or online dating and hook, the so-called hookup culture, and I could see how some women might get absorbed by that culture and find an easy find it an easy solution to subscribe to these um, really quite yeah quite scary ideologies sometimes. But there were also there were some women who were just ultra conservative. In their views, and there were, it also ranged to, to other women who were, almost, who were endorsing domestic violence, who were, who were also feeding into that whole bigger misogynist movement, the so called Manosphere, which is kind of a mosaic of different subcultures, where you also have the incels movement that inspired terrorist attacks against women. So it is definitely also a potentially dangerous um, subculture that I would call extremist in that sense because they have the potential to inspire attacks against women. And what's their motto when you're meant to shut the, shut the fuck up? Yeah, it's that's basically the actual don't motto. Don't respond to, even when you're verbally abused by, yeah, by uh, your husband, for example, don't, just don't respond. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> that's their uh, main philosophy. Yeah.
0: Um, I, I said it is the case, though, that apart from that particular group, and that's the one chapter in the book, yeah. in general... Uh, is it a more male? Is uh, the extremist groups more dominated by men?
2: Not necessarily. I was, I think it really varies from group to group. And some of the groups have a very explicit strategy of bringing women to the front lines of their publicity campaigns, but even sometimes um, use women increasingly also um, in more violent or protest form. Uh, yeah, protest movements so I think it's, it's, it's also become a new strategy even on the jihadist side you, we could see that ISIS in recent years also adopted a strategy of even using women at the front lines not just for the sake of um, lending more legitimacy to the movement or having more publicity but also really using them um, yeah, at the front lines. I think that's something that the Farad has done quite skillfully, they've used women as international influencers where you can see some of the people um, flocking into those communities actually uh, initially come through these female influences on Twitter or on other social media platforms that might portray the movement as something less extreme or less uh, violent as well than they really are.
0: I'd like to explore a little bit the ideology and the recruitment process, but just coming back to that idea of the human traits, is there a sense it, it's a basic appeal to weakness? And, and do you feel that anyone really has the capacity to be radicalized? Anyone who has access to the internet, essentially? Yes,
2: and even more so after, after going undercover with these movements. There was, in, in none of these groups, it didn't, it didn't ever seem like there was a clear profile, to be honest. Yeah. It was really, you could see people from across different um, socioeconomic backgrounds, from different educational backgrounds. Some of them even said they had PhDs. Uh, you could see people from different age groups. Okay, they, sometimes it varies from group to group. Some groups have a very explicit strategy of recruiting mainly young people, like Generation Identity, for example. Um, but that's more of a branding decision. But their brand was very surprising. It's sort of
0: a nipster, you call them. Yeah. It's Nazi, Nazi hipster. hipster. The idea is to be cool and
2: young. and Yeah. They tap into hipster culture. They even wear the clothes of, um, yeah, they wear clothes that you could rather see in, in shortage or that you might rather associate with, um, with left leaning liberals and they explicitly tap into these, um, into these subcultures and use certain strategies, even in terms of their branding or their fashion. Uh, it was interesting also in the run-up to the Charlottesville rally, within that organization team, you had people who were, uh, and even the official announcement was saying, Please, if you think that you're not hip or good-looking enough, or if you're obese, don't join the rally, because we want to um, portray a good image uh, to the media. We want to appear hip and cool and like something you want to join as a young person. Can you explain um,
0: (coughs) red-pilling It's something that they use that comes up a lot in the book? Tell us a little bit about that. It's one of the radicalized it
2: means radicalising people. Yeah, red-pilling is basically a euphemism for radicalization. Um, That is that originated in the alt-right community um, because they're big fans of the Matrix. So they have lots of references to, in general, to pop culture and especially to movies. And Matrix is one of their favorite ones because they think that when they take the, they think they have to make people take the red pill. In the Matrix, when you take the red pill, you all of a sudden see the world as it truly is. So you kind of see the truth, you see the light all of a sudden, and that's their. Uh, euphemism for radicalization so the ultimate red pill for them would be the holocaust never existed something like that and they also then collect red pills for example on some of the content sharing platforms they would collect pieces of disinformation essentially or twisted statistics or, um, or, or uh, academic literature pseudoscientific academic literature and they would use these to basically manipulate and, and red pill people
0: and the ideology, and we talked about the, the you know, fear of the other and mistrust, but one of the things that comes up a lot in your book is the idea of the great replacement theory, which they essentially believe that you know, what, there's a white genocide that is
2: about to happen, and they really firmly believe that. Yes. The white genocide or great replacement idea, in the US, the alt-right the often calls it white, calls it white genocide, is basically the idea yeah that European white populations are gradually being replaced by migrant communities or people um, with mixed racial heritage and it's it 's an idea that I already came across quite a lot in different movements in different <coughs> contexts uh, also different geographic contexts, but when the, the Christchurch attack happened last year almost a year ago now, um, it was really it was crazy to see how much this conspiracy theory has also been able to inspire violent action and, um, and terrorism. So I then looked into uh, also some of the subcommunities where, for example, the, the person who committed the Christchurch attack radicalized himself. And the white genocide or great replacement theory really features so widely across these networks. Uh, it is one of, I would say, one of the most dangerous conspiracy theories because it portrays that existential threat to the in-group and it almost call, is a call for, for defensive action. A bit like the jihadists would use the war against Islam as their call for a defensive jihad. They would see that as, as the apocalyptic kind of prediction of being wiped out is so urgent and so scary as well for, for these people that, that going in for the group in the form of a martyrdom action or terrorism seems appropriate. And you can't
0: help but noticing all the way through this language, the rhetoric, is obviously they get a, a helping hand from a number of politicians. Um, I think obviously what used to be on the fringes, you now feel yeah. is mainstream. And I think you said that, I think on the day of the Christchurch attack, Trump had just called migrants <clears throat> invaders. How much do you think that feeds into it, that the politicians, the rhetoric is, is very similar?
2: A lot of the language has definitely... Um, been mainstreamed because we've seen um, leading politicians, especially far-right populist politicians, mentioning some of these concepts explicitly or implicitly calling migrants invaders or having, for example, like the AFD in Germany, uh, the Eurabia conspiracy theory, which is very closely linked to, the, to this uh, Great Replacement theory, having that on their uh, posters for the campaigns before the European elections. Or frontrunners in Belgium uh, <coughs> of the Vlaams Belang party mentioning Great Replacement on their Twitter
0: Yeah, you say feed. that... Um Trump was am- among the t- top ten most influential figures in the English language Twitter conversations surrounding yeah. the Great Replacement
2: theory. So you can definitely see that these ideas are being given a platform by, especially by far right political figures. And um, yeah, I think that was definitely a terrifying moment when you could see Christchurch and also all the other attacks that have happened since then in the last few months only in Poway, the synagogue shooting. Uh, in the US, then in El Paso, then in Halle in Germany. They were all all of these attackers. In the documents that they had left behind, they had the great replacement theory, basically, as one of their key motivators or inspiring um, conspiracy theories. Uh, I mean, at the music festival, which is
0: a chapter in the book where you really do, I think, say you feel the most uncomfortable, the most out of place, the most potentially scared... Extraordinarily, as well as having buying some of the most frightening merchandise things on the front of their tops, I think it's eight eight, isn't it? For yeah, um, for Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler but 40, they also yeah. are all wearing New Balance trainers, and that's to, because those are the only trainers that are made in America.
2: America first. Yeah, often what far-right groups do quite a lot is that they try to hijack brands and they've tried to do similar things with I think Ben and & Jerry's and some pizza company as well where then the, the firms have to make public statements about oh we we have to, we are distancing ourselves from the neo-Nazi movement in order to reclaim the brand. But in that specific case, New Balance was actually uh, kind of announced after Trump was elected that this might, or one of their spokespeople said, this might be good for us because uh, Trump is, is cutting off the, the or is, is kind of in favor of locally U.S. produced um, shoes. And they're the only shoes in the U.S. or sports trainers that are purely produced locally in terms of their production chain. And so they pri- they just prided themselves of that. And then um, a lot of people on the left, and especially Democrat sympathizers, began uh, burning their shoes and posted videos of that on social media. And the far-right, especially the the alt-right influencers, used that as an opportunity to, to say, oh, now this is our shoe. This is the shoe for white people. And that's why a lot of the, the far-right subcultures have now used New Balance as their shoe. I'm, I'm still in favor of, I think we should reclaim the brand. I don't <laughs> think it's, it should be the alt right brand. I also see plenty of people in London walking around with the brand. So I know like if you shoes. wear New Balance shoes tonight, don't feel offended. I'm not. <laughs> but, but that message gets out
0: very quickly, the message they choose yeah. to get out. And, and you write a lot about communication. Obviously, the Internet isn't just a meeting place. It's also a place where you can communicate. And one of the most important things is disinformation. Mm. I mean, there's a lot we could talk about. You talk about trolling and, and, and hacking. Um, and in InfoWars chapter is, obviously, you say that there are four tactics to spread disinformation. Dismiss the opponent, distort the facts, distract from the central issue, and dismay the audience. How are far-right extremists u- using the sort of online space to completely manipulate the truth?
2: They're using. Sometimes they actually even use. Um, we've seen in the past that they've even shared some of the national intelligence documents that were leaked as part of the WikiLeaks uh, leaks, or uh, some of the NATO documents, training documents, and they use sometimes very. Knowledgeable strategies on how to obfuscate what's true and what's wrong in the online space to really just almost create a sense of um, information chaos, and in that information chaos, they can then also dominate the narrative. So they would then spread um, their disinformation pieces and use, for example, um, trolling armies sometimes in a very organized way, like uh, the trolling, the neo-Nazi trolling army that I joined, that had ten thousand members where they really coordinated reconquest. Reconquista Germanica. They were trying to influence the German elections, and basically um, imitating some of what the alt right had already done in the U.S. before the the elections. They were also uh, collecting pieces of disinformation. Again, they would sometimes call it red pills, and would repurpose some of the stuff that had already been used in the U.S. election and tailor it to the German context, and then um, put out all this disinformation stuff in a very in a highly Organized manner, sometimes tricking the algorithms by, for example, jointly saying at 7 p.m. tonight, everyone tweets this hashtag with this this um, piece of information out or disinformation, and then they would be able to dominate entire discussions and also make it seem as if um, there is a much bigger. Uh, obviously, there is that there is that they are much bigger than they actually are. So it's small minorities that can have a disproportionately loud voice um, that might actually come to dominate political discussions. And that's what happened in Germany, essentially.
0: And there are ways, relatively simple ways, to to counter that. I think you talk about the elves versus the trolls.
2: Yeah, I I do really love the the Baltic elves and the whole concept. I think it should be brought to Europe. I think they're actually trying to set up um, kind of branches in Europe. But the Baltic elves are basically... um, voluntary individuals who spend their time fighting Russian trolls. So they, um, so they counter Russian disinformation campaigns, debunk Russian disinformation, uh, and spend their whole spare time sometimes doing that. So it's quite a... Yeah, I think it is a really good project, good civil society initiative. And there are lots of projects that do something similar also in the European context, not necessarily with disinformation, but with uh, Although we also have, a lot of, of course, a lot of um, fact-checking initiatives, but especially civil society initiatives that, um, for example, counter hate online. There is the initiative "I Am Here," uh, which originated in Sweden. I don't know the Swedish word for it, uh, but you can read it in my book. But it's basically people also spending their spare time trying to twist the conversation towards a more positive direction again, and especially in the Facebook news feeds where you can often have really vile and hateful comment sections, they try to bring their really positive comments back up to the top by liking each other's comments and posting positive things and thereby also tricking the algorithms in a sense. But. And th- this
0: trolling, how often or how real is it as, a ver- as an actually a dangerous threat? I mean, the lines, as we said, between trolls and terrorism are becoming blurred. How, when does... What is essentially messing around online become something that costs lives.
2: It's very well, how
0: easily does that
2: happen? Yeah, it's it's very difficult. It's it's very difficult in many of the cases to actually see through what's really what's just a game, what's just trolling for the pure sake of transgressing so social limits or taboo breaking, or just for the sheer, sheer sake of entertainment and fun, and what might actually be a real world danger. And that's something that the security forces have been struggling with, and that's especially true for um, far right extremists on online networks. Where, with the Christchurch attack and the recent attacks, you could see that these lines are becoming increasingly blurry. And also, some individuals that are members of these networks, where you clearly have calls for violent action, you clearly have very much violence inciting content all over, and very extremist content. Some people can't really tell apart anymore what's a game and what's, what's real. And you could see that after the attack in Christchurch, the first uh, comment that followed the, um, the post of the live-streamed video on 8chan was, is this a LARP? Is this a live-action role-play? Because that person couldn't grasp that this is really happening, that people are being killed. Do you feel a sense of helplessness in the sense that you are there
0: amongst these chats while they're going on and then when the event happens do you feel helpless to do anything about it or what can I, you do about it
2: I, you feel helpless and also powerless because and especially when Christchurch happened um, that really felt a bit like a turning point also in my thinking because I I did, we did at, also at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue we'd been warning about the gamification of, of recruitment campaigns and propaganda of far-right extremist communities and, and the the intersection of trolling and, and extremism for quite a long time. But seeing it really manifest itself in such a terrible terrorist attack was something new. And when I read them and the so-called manifesto that the attacker had left behind and spotted so many similarities in the language, the references, the insider jokes that I'd seen a thousandfold in these communities, that was quite, uh, quite terrifying you say, and you say that the um, security
0: services don't have necessarily enough resources to be monitoring this. Do, do you think they, yeah. that
2: could they be better resourced? They they should be, and they also will invest more in. I think they've already. In I think the problem was that for a long time they underestimated the threat, and you could even see in the last few years how these conversations are taken more seriously. When we briefed the security forces a couple of years ago on the threats of, I mean, trolling communities, it sounds, it does sound ridiculous. And talking about anime and memes and uh, about trolling campaigns is something that isn't naturally associated or traditionally associated with terrorism. but after the last few attacks, they are taking it ser- more seriously. And I can see not just in the UK, but in general, I think most countries are stepping up their efforts to allocate more resources to that problem. I mean, you,
0: you were in the channels when they were plotting Charlottesville, as we said. Did you know that that was going to
2: turn out the way it was? Was the idea for it to stay peaceful? I, I, of course, I had no way of predicting what would happen, but I very consciously took the decision of not going to the rally, although I'd initially planned to go there also as a form of taking the undercover investigation offline. But I was too scared because I could see so many people posting pictures of their guns, of their weapons. I knew that they'd chosen um, Charlottesville because uh, because the region is known, or Virginia is known, as being quite lean on on weapons laws. And I think that was something... Of course, you couldn't predict that a protest that was going to drive into a crowd of counter-protesters, but you could see the violence inciting language and you could see that people are, were prepared to use violence. Although on the surface, they did circulate uh, rules for everyone who joins to stay peaceful because they knew that it would be damaging to their image. Before we, we move
0: on to what, what sorts of things can be done about it or how we should be behaving... Um, Just hacking is another thing that you write in depth about, and obviously we're seeing that more and more. But you say future hacks could lead to millions of lives being lost.
2: What what do you envisage happening? How bad can it get? I think there are several dynamics, especially when looking at at tech uh, developments and innovations, where... It's important to keep those developments in mind when thinking about the next steps that extremists might be taking. And that's especially true for things like, obviously, hacking. um, I mean, hacking has been around for some time now, but I think a lot of the groups that I observed were actually using quite low-skill hacking to already um, cause a lot of damage, and especially psychologically speaking, they could have an impact. Like the ISIS hacking group that I joined, they really weren't using very sophisticated hacking techniques, but they could hack hundreds of school websites in the U.S. and just create a lot of fear by replacing the school websites with uh, ISIS propaganda. And of course, no one wants to send their children to a school that had Mm. just been hacked by by ISIS. So they were good at interrupting things. But if they move one step further towards actually hacking critical infrastructure, hacking um, even things like uh, nuclear plants or uh, electric plants, yeah, that could potentially turn into a really dangerous hybrid threat if they use that coupled with other attacks. And also other things like deep fakes that could be used in the future for disinformation campaigns where I don't think we are um, prepared enough to really deal with those challenges, to deal with the use of AI-created text that looked like um, a journalist uh, had written it or or AI-based uh, manipulated videos where you can, in the aftermath make a person say something a politician say something that they never said those are the those are my especially my concern is especially of um, policymakers and and also the security services not having the capacity to look that far ahead because we're seeing a time lag with almost all the developments that have happened in the last few years and the same might be true for these new tools that can be exploited by extremists you don't think there's a way in which now you
0: have recognized them, people are recognizing them, we are seeing them day to day, we can keep up with that?
2: It's. I, I hope so, and um, that's also partly that was also the goal of the book, was to, yeah. in a sense, be able to predict the next steps of extremists and by exposing their tactics, by getting insights into how they work, both on the social level but also, of course, on the technological level. And um, especially when it comes to communication campaigns, I really think that... Uh, they are, unfortunately, very sophisticated, sometimes more sophisticated than, than political parties. You could see sometimes their reach is just higher or their maybe also their motivation is higher than for um, people campaigning for political parties.
0: You, you obviously write about it. You've written a book about it. You, you're a journalist. You've, you've written articles about them. But... I'm very interested in the difficulty of how the media should cover these these groups should they give them any oxygen should they give them a platform for their views which is exactly what they want is there a way in which if we ignored them it would be to our benefit
2: there there is um, the theory and that was there was a really good report that was actually published by the New York-based um, research and Society Foundation which uh, Whitney Phillips is the author, it's called The Oxygen of Amplification, and she looks at the tipping point of where, from which point onward it makes sense, it's actually necessary to report on extremist activities or campaigns, Uh, and she basically, her conclusion is that once something reaches that tipping point of getting viral attention on the internet anyways, it would be definitely recommended to report on it because otherwise it might have a, um, a negative effect. But on the other hand, if it's a really small uh, fringe trolling campaign that doesn't get much attention, that was one of the mistakes in the run-up to the, uh, to the US election, that a lot of these really small trolling campaigns got a lot of attention in the media. And that, that really amplified them and gave them a megaphone for their extremist ideologies. And so there's a, a really difficult, I think, balance for journalists to strike of also covering, covering the important campaigns that do have an online influence, but also, of course, shedding a critical light on it, giving enough analysis whenever. I'm sure, I'm sure
0: a lot of people are wondering, and you,
2: and you wonder the
0: whole way through your book, how the tech companies allow all of this to happen. Because ultimately, um, whether it's in the online chat groups, it all starts with social media. Why aren't they doing more about it? You feel such
2: frustration going through your book. Why aren't they doing more to shut it down? They are already starting to take some steps, but mainly because they have to, because they always take as much action as... or as, they respond as much to the threat as is demanded of them. If they, of course, their business model depends on um, maximizing user attention, maximizing the time that users spend on their platform. And maximizing attention, unfortunately, also means quite often um, having content that, uh, that captivates our attention. I think that hasn't really changed with social media. That We're still interested in the same things like we like, just like we w- liked watching gladiator fights. I think we still have that it's a human tendency to just be um, that our attention is captured by things like violence or conspiracy theories um, extremist content and also the people that essentially train the algorithms because they spend most time On YouTube or on some of the Mm -hmm. social media platforms, tend to be people who are extremists, conspiracy theorists, uh, theorists or addicted people. Um, So it's also the whole way that basically the infrastructure of of a lot of these tech platforms works is giving more air and more attention to to extreme campaigns. Um, because you say that yeah. online social media platforms played a role in 90
0: percent of radicalization cases which is shocking but actually not that surprising are you able to say who are the are the worst culprits i mean youtube strikes me as perhaps the one that needs to clear up its act the most but
2: yeah youtube received a lot of criticism and rightly so in the last uh, year especially because Uh, even just creating sometimes uh, or even just creating a neutral account and clicking on a political video you could potentially end up in an extremist echo chamber within uh, 24 hours Uh, because the algorithms take because of the automated recommendations YouTube has already taken some action to reduce for example uh, conspiracy theory content or to to alter their algorithms so that you wouldn't um, have as much (coughs) conspiracy theory content in your in your recommendations list. But it's still, I, I've, yeah, we've been testing it quite regularly and it's still, I mean, it still doesn't work. And even with my account where I often have to look at these things, I regularly get really extreme content suggested on YouTube. And that suggests to me that it's still not really working. It also seems,
0: it's, it's, it is very tricky because they will, you suggest, always find somewhere else to go. Where, where do they go? Because they, they recruit in more obvious spaces and mm. then they go to other places, darker sides of the internet. Where,
2: where do they then go that is just beyond the control? Quite often the, the mobilization starts on the bigger platforms on like YouTube or Facebook, Twitter, but they then take it to the more fringe forums or to um, their own in-house built uh, encrypted apps or existing encrypted apps that they've hijacked, like for example the gaming platform Discord which uh, has become one of the, the hotbeds, I would say, for far-right extremists. And they've created um, hundreds of groups on this platform. Also the Charlottesville organizers were. And also the Reconquista Germanica um, trolling army. They were organizing on this platform because its infrastructure lends itself to uh, tightly organized, almost military-style campaigns. And there's a whole, But there's a whole universe of alternative platforms that are Kind of beyond the the more mainstream social media platforms, where their uh, most of their indoctrination and also the socialization processes are actually on these smaller platforms that are right now not given that much attention in any of the existing, at least in any of the existing legal frameworks. Such as, for example, in Germany, the anti-hate speech law, uh, the NetzDG, only focused on platforms with over two million users, which. <coughs> obviously these small platforms don't reach, but their their user base and the content that is shared on there is much more extreme, much more violence inciting. So it would actually also require attention from a legal perspective. Uh, yeah, and that's also one of the problems that uh, occurred with the latest terrorist attacks who all were found among these smaller fringe platforms like HN, which has now been removed but replaced with eight Kuhn we can also see that it's a very fluid dynamic space where often these platforms reappear in a different shape or form and sometimes even extremists create their own encryption methods for example ISIS was also one of the the ISIS cells that I was um, looking at was also building their own uh, tool called Muslim Crypt where they tried to embed messages within images and they also had their own
1: yeah exactly
2: it's it's kind of a yeah new form of stenography. And they, had, uh, they also built their own tools. And likewise, far-right extremists, also uh, ultra-libertarians, have built tools for more extreme voices, uh, such as Gab or Mines or, or other platforms, or even Hatreon that was founded after some of the people crowdsourcing on Patreon were had, seeing their accounts shut down. So they had to create a different crowdsourcing platform for their own purposes with all this knowledge do you feel any optimism that we can get to a place
0: where we do something about that
2: i think we've already seen quite a lot of movement in the last few months i would say especially since if i look back exactly one year ago when christchurch happened i do think that there's a lot more that there's a higher level of consciousness about and awareness among the policymakers and the security forces when it comes to these sub-communities and and Subcultures, and i but I am I'm quite pessimistic in the in the short run because I still think we're in the very early stages of even comprehending the problem, let alone responding to it. But I do think that we can be optimistic in the medium to long run. I think it's like with any uh, disruptive kind of innovation that we've had in the past; it takes some time until we fully understand what it does to us as society, uh, also on an individual level, on a group level social media and in general the internet has just created entirely new um, worlds in which extremists can operate and has given way to new vulnerabilities, technical but also societal vulnerabilities that they can exploit. Yeah, and one of the things that you've spoken about, you've mentioned quite a few times this evening
0: that I wouldn't want to not uh, give the audience a better understanding of is gamification, which I think was very much illustrated with Christchurch. But what is gamification?
2: Gamification is adding essentially adding um, game-like elements to non-gaming situations, and it has been used as a marketing tool, as an incentive system for employees. Um, we there's even an app that, for example, gamifies jogging or going for or run, running uh, by making you imagine that you're being um, that that zombies are following you. Or there's also Kellogg's, I think you say. Yeah, it's it kind of started with the cornflakes industry of putting little games into cornflakes boxes, making the whole experience of buying and eating cornflakes something more enjoyable. Uh, so it's 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 a concept that I think in general is positive, but extremists have used it very skillfully also to make extremist uh, ideologies seem less uh, less terrible or even more fun and entertaining, and in the past. ISIS has used gamification quite um, quite skillfully. They've used gamification in, for example, their propaganda campaigns, putting the faces of, of jihadist fighters onto video game uh, covers, calling for some even using gaming language and mixing that with uh, with jihadist language, calling for uh, fighters from Europe to join the, the call of duty, but basically to join the call for jihad. And More recently, Christchurch was the first example really in the whole series of attacks that we've seen where the act in itself, the the terrorist act in itself was gamified. Before that, it was more the recruiting strategies or the the propaganda were gamified. But now it's even been... He carried the whole thing out. He even, the way that he live-streamed or the the way that he shot that live-streamed footage and live-streamed video was resembling... Uh, first-person shooting games or these ego-shooter games. And it was almost created for that subculture of far-right-leaning gamers, which is, of course, just a subculture within the gaming community. I wouldn't demonize all the gamers. But uh, it was tailored to that audience to get their applause, to get them, and successfully, so to get them to... Create versions of that footage where they actually give scores for it 's terrible, but give scores for every Muslim that is being shot, and almost turn it into a video game are you still to cover? you' still in, in these um, spaces,
0: and for example, last week, obviously we saw the shooting in, in Germany was there could that sort of thing have been, have been stopped? He posted I think a few weeks before on a far right platform. Yeah. Should that have been identified. And could he have been stopped?
2: It's always difficult to say in retrospect, and I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I. I would say this could have been stopped because I think it is. In, in retrospect, it's always easier to, to blame it all on the security forces who didn't have full visibility. It was similar with the Poway attack against the synagogue. In that case, it was even um, more difficult because the person, uh, the, the shooter, actually posted something on HN. His his uh, document and the announcement of the attack just I think half an hour before the attack happened but of course had the FBI been a- made aware of this quicker or um, maybe they could have stopped it and in this case it's it's m- even more unfortunate because there were hints but I think it's difficult sometimes um, the security forces and the police also <coughs> usually investigate concrete threats and if the threats are abstract or if that if they don't have full visibility into the channels where this is being posted. It's very hard. Uh, and they only have so much capacity of human intelligence where they can have people monitoring these uh, channels. So it is, it's, diff- it's a very difficult matter. In that case, in Hanau last week, one of the things that I found um, quite interesting was that reading the, the, so-called, again, the so-called manifesto or letter that was left behind and also looking at the video... Uh, it seems like there were quite a lot of QAnon conspiracy theory elements in those documents. QAnon. QAnon is also is one of the communities that I explored in the book. they are more the conspiracy theory communities that originated in the US but have really spread across Europe. And that might also explain why he actually addressed his whole video to Americans and he spoke English. And... There were a lot of elements like the idea that, uh, that there are secret underground pedophile rings um, operating in the US um, all under the, the Hillary Clinton or under the Clinton family. Um, these ideas sounded very familiar to me resonating from that QAnon network, but also other things like the intelligence and security services are actually all spying on us. It's all a big conspiracy. These ideas featured heavily and were combined with racist elements, with uh, even calls to wipe out entire countries' populations. I think he listed like 10 different countries, mostly Middle Eastern countries, uh, that he wanted to see wiped out. You end the book and people will be able to read the 10 predictions for the future and 10
0: solutions. In terms of the predictions, and you spoke to experts to get those, which would you say were the most striking of the things to watch out for?
2: It was interesting because, uh, yeah, I asked 10 different counterterrorism experts for their opinions about the future and there were there were quite a lot of different um, things that came up that I hadn't even thought about. But there were also some patterns and some... recurring themes and I think uh, a few of the most convincing ones were probably that we might see kind of a backlash against tech so that there might actually be some kind of new um, extremist movement um, like an anti-tech movement almost but also of course environmentalist um, groups could turn to more violence I would still put those uh, extremists or those potentially even violent movements, into a different category. I'm not even sure I would call them extremist, maybe terrorist, but not um, ideologically driven by a hatred towards an out-group, but it's they're more anti-government, anti-system kind of groups. Uh, that's also how, why I wouldn't put, for example, the far-left are usually, for me, in a different category, ideologically speaking, and also in terms of how they mobilize from, for example, jihadist or uh, white supremacist or far-right groups or misogynist groups. But then also some of the yeah other things that came up were more authoritarian state-led terrorism. Where of course also entire states can exploit new technologies to impose um, to yeah to impose very autocratic regimes and also use even um, a form of terrorism against their own population. And I think we're seeing the first kind of are we getting a sense of what this might look like when looking at China and looking at how they. Uh, have set up the so-called re-education camps for for the Uyghur communities, and using using these really sophisticated data analysis capacities that they have and surveillance methods to actually um, yeah clamp down on entire populations. And then of course things like the use of drones, um, also more sophisticated hacking techniques. Uh, different technologies that can be used in the future where I think it's important to watch out for those and take into account the newest developments on all sides uh, and the newest innovations when thinking about what the next steps might be of terrorist groups and extremists. And obviously, I don't want
0: to send everyone away sort of <laughs> terrified and, and depressed. So you then offer yeah. <laughs> you offer ten, 10 solutions. And again, of course, they'll be able to read in the book. But what would you say if... To, were the most important ones to take away. And they're, they're, they mix, really. And it's a range between what we can do and specifically, as we've spoken about, what tech companies and, and people in authority can do.
2: Yeah, I think that's also really important to highlight, that I, I do think that there's a responsibility for all these different stakeholders that that are part of uh, of the solution. Because, uh, of course, we do need policymakers to come up with better um, regulatory systems, especially when dealing with um, with unregulated online uh, communities, I think there is still so much potential for uh, for yeah for laws that that find a better system of dealing with, um, especially also some of these fringe communities that remain completely unaddressed by the existing anti hate speech laws or even terrorist laws that usually. Uh, or in general, the terrorism definition doesn't even apply to uh, far-right extremist networks because, one, they don't operate in traditional structures anymore. They're more like loose international networks. Um, so I think we also need a new definition for what we consider terrorist or, as terrorist organizations, yeah. but also, uh, of course, tech companies taking a more proactive approach to this and um, forming, for example... Uh, better cooperation uh, better we yeah, better um, coalitions also with the smaller tech firms. There are a few really promising initiatives like tech against terrorism that connect smaller platforms that might not have the capacity or the human resources to actually <coughs> identify and take down extremist content and they bring them to together with the bigger platforms who already have uh, who can pass on their knowledge who 've established the algorithms to do that and then, on the other hand, there's a, there a huge role to play for, uh, for education providers, for intervention providers, and for anyone, really, who is an online user who can show the same degree of civil courage that we're showing in a situation on the tube where someone might get um, attacked or, or harassed based on their, on their race, for example, where people would step in. And I don't really see the same degree of civil courage happening in online spaces yet. We could turn some of these places into much nicer places if we showed the same courage
0: online. Yeah. In fact, you say that the arts have a very important role to play, which struck me as interesting.
2: That as well, yeah, because one of the the key kind of advantages right now, or yeah, the, the key advantages that uh, some of these extremist movements and online subcultures have is that they frame themselves as innovative, um, avant-garde counterculture movements, and by taking away that USP that they right now hold, I think we could also, we could kind of reconquer that space. by also maybe, the, because the arts can transgress social boundaries, can break taboos, they're, all, they're allowed to do that and they have much more, yeah, also much more um, room to appeal to deeper emotions. That's something, as a researcher, that's not something, or even as, as think tanks, counter-extremism think tanks, that's hard to do. We can inform people, we can raise awareness. We can stage education campaigns. We can also work with artists, of course, but it's something where I see a role for the arts.
0: So, Is your hope with this book then to make people more aware, to educate people, to make these changes happen?
2: Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, the goal was on different levels, but most importantly, definitely for everyone, um, hopefully, who reads the book to kind of Get more insights into how the how the inner workings of extremist groups what they look like, but also to um, to to allow everyone to protect themselves from any kind of intimidation or manipulation campaign or radicalization campaign potentially. And in the end, of course, a bit of of it is also about creating pressure by um, shedding light on these dynamics, creating pressure on policymakers on tech firms to do something about it. And Yeah, and then I think the last point for me was also to shed light on the human dimensions and um, to show how many human elements are still left even among the most extreme of the extremists because I think it's really important to use those as starting points for any kind of intervention model to bring back people into the mainstream.
0: Well, it is, it is the most extraordinary book. I can't, can't more highly recommend it. It's one of those books you sort of want in, to put into the hands of everyone and I hope it's studied in schools. But thank you very much indeed for coming to tell us about it and thank you all very, very much for coming. Thank you.
1: This week's podcast starred Julia Ebner and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. You'll find more podcasts on global politics and social science on our website howtoacademy.com alongside free live streams with leading thinkers including FT economist Martin Wolf and former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. As ever, if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.